welcome to the Healing Our Sight podcast, where we discuss vision issues and healing strategies from the patient perspective. The goal of this podcast is to create an awareness of the diverse types of vision issues people experience, to highlight the types of help available, and to open a dialogue between patients to show we're not alone in our vision struggles. In episode 10, I'm speaking with Wendy Rosen, who learned about vision therapy when her daughter began struggling in school. She subsequently wrote a book entitled The Hidden Link Between Vision and Learning, Why Millions of Learning Disabled Children Are Misdiagnosed, that we'll discuss in this episode. We'll talk about the many types of visual skills critical to learning, none of which are screened for in the traditional school readiness vision screening. We'll also talk about the huge overlap in symptoms between dyslexia, ADHD, and vision-related learning problems that result in millions of children being misdiagnosed, and much more. Stay tuned for all the details. Today, I'm speaking with Wendy Rosen. I'm going to give a little intro of her right now. Um, Over the course of her diverse career as an educator, Wendy Rosen has taught preschool through high school students in schools and a variety of experiential educational frameworks. A proponent of innovation and creativity in the field of education, she has authored articles and developed numerous curriculum resources on a wide range of educational topics. Currently, Wendy works as an education consultant specializing in vision-related learning problems. She facilitates professional development workshops and lectures widely about this critical subject. Wendy is an adjunct instructor at Pacific University, where she teaches a course about the relationship between functional vision and learning. She is the author of The Hidden Link Between Vision and Learning, Why Millions of Learning Disabled Children Are Misdiagnosed, and Self Smart, the little book with big ideas to help kids thrive. Today, we're going to be talking about that first book, The Hidden Link Between Vision and Learning, Why Millions of Learning Disabled Children Are Misdiagnosed. That misdiagnosed part really caught my attention when I started reading this book. And I think that to start off with, though, we want to know what brought you to this authorship? What made you decide to write these books? And that probably starts with your experience with your daughter, right? Yes, it does. And um, first of all, I want to just thank you, Denise, so much for having me join you today and for doing what you do to help others understand the critical importance of this subject. Thank you. You're doing wonderful work and and the world needs it so much. So thank you. I appreciate that. That's my pleasure. So go ahead and tell us a little bit about what was going on and how you learned about all of this. I always appreciate the opportunity to talk about this. And it's funny that you started with the mention of the subtitle of the book, Why Millions of Learning Disabled Children Are Misdiagnosed, because people, when I was writing the book, people said to me, are you sure you want to put that as a title? Isn't, isn't that a little bit of an exaggeration? And I said, actually, no, it's really not. They're like, aren't you being dramatic? I said, no, <laughs> there really are millions of learning disabled children who are misdiagnosed because we don't know about the vision piece. And so um, this will uh, be, this will take on new meaning to to the listeners as as we uh, go through this lecture to understand why exactly. Um, and so, yeah, I wrote this book because I I went through this experience learning about this as a parent, 
and it changed. I watched it change my my daughter's life and later my son's life, and it just changed the whole trajectory of my career as an educator. So I wanted to I wanted to give back, and we were just lucky in that we found out what was at the root cause of our daughter's struggles. And there are so many kids going through this that are just not lucky in that somebody hasn't stumbled onto it in the way that we did. And I wanted to get this information out there because getting a child the help that they need just should not come down to luck. Mm-hmm. So, so this journey began when, when our daughter was in second grade and she started to struggle in school. And this was unusual because Sarah always loved school. She kind of taught herself how to read and write just on her own and just really loved learning. And then in second grade, that all started to change. She began feeling very stressed about school. Uh, Her demeanor changed. And um, we were starting to hear from her teacher that she wasn't able to get her work done on time. And this resulted in extra homework because the work was then being sent home to be done on her time. And we saw her handwriting regress. It was actually better in kindergarten than it was in second grade. And that's really not the way this is supposed to go. So we were confused um, between her teacher's efforts and our support at home and some behavior modification strategies that we came up with together. Sarah got through the rest of the year okay, but it was concerning us because it was just not her. We weren't seeing our usual happy, spirited, enthusiastic little girl. Right. So third grade came along and it just got worse. And by November, Sarah kind of just hit a wall and it everything was just worse than it was in second grade and we were at a loss for answers so we decided to go through the child study team evaluation process because we thought maybe there was something going on that we were not able to identify and her teacher was not able to identify and even though I'm a teacher I as her mom couldn't really be objective about my own child so we, we went through that process and sure enough it turned out that Sarah had a uh, a writing deficiency and basically she was in in third grade she was writing on the level of a of a first grader both with handwriting and with written expression and so that uh, qualified her for special education and a classification and yet the child study team was not able to give us any answers as to why this was happening and that was kind of frustrating Mm -hmm. and so we of course agreed to the uh especially the help that Sarah needed, but it just didn't solve anything for us. And so we privately followed up with, uh, with a psychologist just, just to get a second opinion on the evaluation results that, uh, that we had for Sarah, and which, by the way, were all normal. Mm-hmm. Um, IQ, all these, all these scores were, were in your average to high average range. She was, she was normal except for one test that she bombed on. She was given a sequence of, of symbols that she had to repeat. Uh, she had to that were in a pattern and she had to replicate this pattern by drawing them and she just couldn't do it. It's an extremely low score. Mm-hmm. So when we followed up 
this uh, the psychologist noticed that and she connected some dots between the evaluation scores and said, you know, I think there might be a visual issue going on. And we were really interested to hear that because we had been taking Sarah for eye exams and nothing was flagged. She then said that she, she recommended that we go see a developmental optometrist. And I said, well, what's a developmental optometrist? And she explained that this is a subspecialty of optometry and these doctors have had additional postdoc training in how to identify, diagnose and treat visual and perceptual problems. So off we went and sure enough, it turned out that Sarah had several deficits and uh, one of them explained the writing score. She had, she had a condition called convergence insufficiency which is where the eyes don't work with the team. And she was actually seeing double and nobody knew this. It was unbelievable. Um, and then she had a visual motor, visual motor integration issue, which actually explained her, her writing deficiency and uh, a focus accommodation issue and, and uh, an ocu ocular motility issue, meaning the eye muscles were not working properly, enabling her to track smoothly when she read. So, we had our answers and Sarah went through a course of something called vision therapy, which is a protocol that retrains the brain to process visual input correctly. Mm -hmm. And after nine months, Sarah was completely rehabilitated back to herself and declassified subsequently. And it was amazing. And I still can't talk about it without feeling emotional and getting chills. <laughs> Because of I it just it, and this is a long time ago. Right. <laughs> she's now she's now a teacher herself, and yeah. so um, it was an incredibly inspiring experience to go through to watch this incredibly hidden deficit that we never would have known about if we didn't happen to choose someone who did know about this mm -hmm. solve the the root cause of her struggles, and so it, it changed her life. It changed my life because at this point, as a teacher, I was just not seeing my my job as the same anymore. I was really surprised that I had never been taught about this subject as a teacher and that I didn't know about it. When I started to do research to learn more about this, and I learned that one in four kids are struggling with this, I said, whoa. And I just became this mom on a mission to to get the word out as much as I could, because again, this is not common knowledge. And with one in four kids going through this, that sort of explains the subtitle of the book right there. Before we even go any further, we needed to, we needed to do something about this. So I started to do professional development workshops in schools, and I would share this information with teachers, and I could remember you know, it, I, for me, it was like this, this light went on when I learned about this. And I saw those lights go on for all the teachers that I would share this knowledge with. And then they would all inevitably at the end of a workshop, they would say to me, well, what can we do? And that's when we'd all kind of hit a wall together because there wasn't a systemic mechanism in place to address this. And there needs to be. And that was the impetus for me to write the book because I wanted to get this knowledge out to the general population and I wanted there to be a user-friendly tool to explain this fairly intricate subject in a way that anybody could pick up this book and then understand it. Okay. And where is the book most used right now? 
I would say it's mostly used by parents and teachers. Mm -hmm. um, however, really, we need to get the book into the hands of pediatricians as well. Uh, really, any child development specialist, therapist, anybody really whose life and work touches the life of a child. Mm -hmm. As we'll talk about later, this is such a far-reaching subject if it just touches everything. Yeah. Well, and the book looks like a textbook. That's why I was wondering if it's being used yeah. as a textbook anywhere yeah. as well. Right. It's, I'm glad you mentioned that because it does look textbooky. It has that textbook kind of cover. And the reason for that is the publisher, Roman and Littlefield, is an academic publisher. Mm -hmm. So they publish academic books. However, this book, though they're an academic publisher, this book is out there and available for the general population, not just to, in academic circles. Mm -hmm. um, and that was something that was very important to me because I wanted, again, I want this book to be accessible for everybody. But it does look textbooky. You're right. But don't let that scare you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was able to be off-putting. It's it's very, I've been told I was I wrote it to be user-friendly. And fortunately, the feedback I've gotten is that it is. So I'm grateful right. for that. Yeah, I felt that. So as you learned how to recognize all those hidden vision problems, what did you start to notice when you were teaching then? Did you pick out all those kids in your own classroom as you were teaching? That's a really good question. That's interesting because when I learned about this, I could think back on all these students that I had, some students who were struggling, and I could remember, you know, I bet this, and no, we didn't know what was going on with, with them. I, I was thinking to myself, I bet it was this. I bet it was something in this in this area. And I, I took some time off to, to be a stay-at-home mom. When I went back to the classroom, my perspective was totally changed. I didn't see my students in the same way. I would notice things so differently when they would read orally. I would not only be listening to them, I would be watching them. I would watch their eyes because I could see now. I learned this through doing vision therapy with Sarah. I could watch her. I watched her eyes and I was noticing how her eyes were working differently. I could see it. And so I'm tuned in now to people's eyes. And so I can sometimes see if something is not aligned right or if they're not uh, working together well or if they're not tracking smoothly. So I began to notice things like that. Handwriting definitely jumped out at me. Eye alignments, attention and behavior. Kids are, are, are fidgety or agitated. You know, what's going on? Are they experiencing some kind of stress that is because of this and we're just not aware of it? You know, all of those questions. But I'll share with you a, a really telling story. Um, and the story is in the book, but it was such an incredible example at the time that I experienced it. I was teaching in Richmond and I was going into classrooms to do activities with different classes. And I was working in a second grade classroom and uh, walking around watching the kids doing the work that they were working on for the, uh, for the lesson. And I noticed this little girl, I stopped at her desk because her actions really just grabbed me. She, um, not literally, <laughs> she was <laughs> erasing frantically. You know, one of those, you, we've all seen this, right? You erase so much and then you have holes in your paper, mm -hmm. you know, and um, smudges everywhere. And the frustration on her face was really visible. And I just paused at the side of her desk as she was doing this, you know, wondering what I 
could do to help her. And she, she noticed my presence and she looked up at me, heaved a big sigh and she said, you know, it's like magic. I write the lines on the paper and then they move all by themselves and I have to start all over again. And I just, I'm, I'm, I have chills right now telling you the story again. And this was a, a long time ago. Yes. Because I knew exactly what was going on. I knew exactly that there was something visual happening, that things were moving and she couldn't keep, I mean, she was, she was almost seeing a mirage, you know, on her paper because she was not able to see clearly. So I, I don't remember what I said to her. I, something, you know, just words of encouragement. But then I went and I took the, her teacher aside and I told her what I just saw. I had given a workshop for my school on this subject and her teacher had participated in my in my workshop. And so she knew about the subject. And I told her what just happened. And we both froze, <laughs> you know, looked at each other like, oh my gosh, you know, like she got it immediately. Like this is what was going on. And she, she shared with me that she, this little girl had been struggling since kindergarten. And for two years, they were trying to figure out what was troubling her. And they couldn't come up with any explanation as to why she was struggling. And right there, we had our answer. Mm-hmm. So, yes, knowing this uh, was nothing short of life changing, you know, personally with my own daughter and, and later my son, uh, because my son went through this because uh, it was induced by a concussion. Mm-hmm. And um, had I not known about this, that would have been totally missed. If we have time to circle back to that story, I'd be happy to share it with you. Okay. Uh, but there was. Uh, so much that I had learned and, and I just saw everything so differently and still do. Right. There's a lot of different visual categories that you go over in your book as far as what we might see, right? When, and everyone always just is aware of the visual acuity factor. You know, that's the only thing we ever test for. You go look at your little Snellen eye chart and tell the child they're fine or they convince you they're fine because uh, you know they can fake it or whatever but that's the only thing that ever gets tested do you want to kind of just generally go over what the other categories are I know there's a there's a lot of different skills in each of those that we wouldn't be able to necessarily delve into but uh, maybe just a kind of an overview for sure. I can give you a taste for sure of, of the different, there are, there are over two dozen skills that we use every day, visual skills that we use and we don't, um, I would say generally people have not heard of most of them. You mentioned the Snell and I chart that before I go into the different categories, this will give you some of the backstory, which will help you appreciate why the Snell and I chart that we use Uh, That's the big chart, the chart with the big E at the top of it that we see in school nurses' offices and pediatricians' offices. The Snell and I chart is a very, very outdated method for, (laughs) to put it mildly, uh, screen for children's vision. That I chart was developed in 1862 Mm -hmm. by a, a Dutch ophthalmologist named Herman Snellen. And I should just like 
give you a heads up to like be sitting down when I tell you the next part of this, because <laughs> this was invented, this eye chart was invented to test the vision of soldiers in the Civil War. And this is the tool we are still using today to screen through children's vision, despite everything that we have learned about our dominant sense, which is vision, over the past 150 years. So this chart, this screening, only measures how well someone sees at a distance of 20 feet, period. That's where we get that 2020 reading. So it doesn't measure for 10 feet or 50 feet or, or five feet or within arm's length where most schoolwork is done with kids. And so parents and teachers and school nurses, <laughs> lots of other people come away with this understanding, I'm putting that in quotation marks, of what a child's visual story is. But this measurement only tells us 5% of that visual story. And we have a false sense of security when we think our child has 20-20 vision. A lot of parents and teachers will say, oh, they've got 20-20 vision, they're doing fine. That is such a small percentage of a child's visual experience. Mm -hmm. So I want to mention that it's really important to understand that eyesight and vision are two different things. All too often, we interchange these terms without understanding this. So eyesight is the physiological ability to receive input through the eyes. Vision is the ability to understand what that input is. And vision actually happens in the brain. Vision actually happens in our whole body. Mm -hmm. So as we alluded to before, there are more than a dozen visual skills beyond acuity, which is how well we see, uh, whether we're talking nearsighted or farsightedness. And these other skills affect how well we function and perform in all areas of our lives. But they are especially important and critical to a child's overall developmental process and especially academic achievement and school success. Right. So the two different, we can, we can subdivide visual skills into two different skill areas. One area is called visual efficiency skills. And this includes the means by which the eyes physically take in information through the systems of acuity, which is how, well, how clearly you see at any distance something we uh, call focus accommodation, which is how well you're able to adjust your focus from near to far distances, say from looking at a book on your desk to looking up at, I was going to say a chalkboard, but that's outdated. So we'll say a smart board because <laughs> <Right. laughs> that's where we are now. Yeah. <laughs> Some board far away. Yeah. Right? yeah. Um, and back again and being able to do that smoothly. Mm -hmm. Something called vergence, which is how well the eyes work together as a team. And ocular motility, which is um, how well the eye muscles are able to move the actual eyes to focus clearly. Mm -hmm. So uh, the, other, the other category is visual information processing. And this engages more complex functions in the brain. 
the concentration here is less on physiology and it's more on the thinking and perceptual abilities that tie in with other sensory systems in the body, such as the vestibular system and the proprioceptive system and the auditory and the motor systems. Mm -hmm. So these skills, all of these skills in concert essentially allow for a person to make sense of what they are seeing and understand it. And it's also important to know that 80% of the brain is wired into the visual system. So vision has a profound effect on how we navigate through the world and how uh, we take in information. And it ties in with every other sensory system in our body. So it has a really important overarching role in just about everything that we do. Right. So deficits in any of these areas are going to make it difficult for a child to keep up with learning and can it de decrease the stamina needed to complete assignments and classroom tasks. This can impact, for instance, the development of reading and comprehension skills for starters. But uh, there's there's a long list in, in terms of you know again the profound role that vision plays in our in our functioning and how that plays out in a learning context. Right. We talked earlier about the fact that a lot of the time it's being misdiagnosed. So I really was struck by the charts that you have in your book that check all those different boxes on what we look for when a child is diagnosed with ADHD or dyslexia and, you know, how that even relates to what a normal child is going to look like and how the doctors decide, oh, this child has ADHD and we need to medicate them or, you know, they're dyslexic or whatever. Right. Uh, exactly. And I am so glad that you are shining a much needed spotlight on this, Denise, because it is overwhelming how many kids are walking around misdiagnosed because of the overlap of symptoms between a vision-related learning problem and two very common conditions, ADHD and dyslexia. So let me back up a second and just define what a vision-related learning problem is. So this is a, a learning problem that a, that a child will have that's based in a dysfunction in the visual system, some sort of visual deficit that is interfering with their learning capacity. And vision-related learning problems are not recognized as a disability in need of attention because a staggering portion of our population does not even know that they exist. Mm -hmm. And because this information is not yet common knowledge, too few people are aware that a breakdown in the visual system can actually be at the core of a learning disability. So let's talk about the, the misdiagnosis that you mentioned. To fully grasp the reality of how the root cause of a child's struggles may be incorrectly diagnosed, we need to consider that 15 out of the 18 symptoms linked with ADHD are also associated with the vision disorder. Mm -hmm. And 13 out of the 17 symptoms of dyslexia can occur with a vision-related learning problem. 
So this is these are to me overwhelming numbers. Yes. <laughs> 18 and 13 out of 17. I mean that's most of them. It is. If you, if you look at the charts that you're referring to, and um, I know that the folks don't have them in front of them as we're talking, so I'm just going to talk about a, a few examples here. Um, it, it, these these charts go down the list of all these different symptoms and and show where the overlaps are. And so, you know, lots of times kids are, are told that they're fidgety or that they have a hard time staying in their seat or they're disorganized. You know, they look like they're driven by a motor. Um, you know, and here we're talking about ADHD symptoms, obviously. These symptoms also occur with a vision problem. These symptoms, I also want to mention, are normal in a child under seven years of age, according to the time-tested research of Dr. Arnold Kuzel. And unfortunately, so many kids at very young ages who are showing this very normal level of energy and excitement yeah. are getting labeled for having an attention problem when they're just being entirely normal developmentally. Right. That's another whole discussion <laughs> for another day, <laughs> yes. but that is that is a category on this chart. So I just wanted to mention it. Yeah. Uh, so so yeah. So you've got you know got kids who have these who are exhibiting these symptoms, and right away you know it's so easy to to label a child ADHD. But again, unless you know about the vision piece, we could be missing the fact that this is a root. This is rooted in the dysfunction of the visual system and not an attention issue. Mm -hmm. In terms of dyslexia. You know, we often think of the reversals that happen, confusion with letters, um, directionality confusion, forming letters, uh, written language, spelling difficulties, problems with sequencing. All of these things that we associate with dyslexia can also occur with a vision-related learning problem. So again, it's a really important thing to know that these vision problems exist because if we don't, we are inadvertently misdiagnosing so many kids and classifying so many kids and even medicating so many kids because we are simply lacking this knowledge that it could be a problem that is rooted in a visual deficit. And this to me is just tragic and it's avoidable and we need to do something about that. So yes, these charts do, as, as you're mentioning, um, illustrate this potential for misdiagnosis. The thing that I noticed recently too is one of my friends said that she recognized that her daughter had strabismus. Uh, one of those cases where the doctor just said she has it, there's nothing we can do kind of thing, which is common also. Um, and she said to me, I don't know if what she's dealing with is because of her strabismus or, you know, her lazy eye, of course she put it as, um, or if it's because she has ADHD and I said, okay, so she, you're recognizing she has both. Does she really have both one? Mm -hmm. And we need to let people know there's something we can do about it. Not, oh, she has both of these things. I don't know what to do. Exactly. And this is where we need to do so much on a societal level to get this knowledge out there so that it's common knowledge. Folks like the woman you just mentioned sense something but don't know what it is. It's not identified because we, don't, we simply don't, we don't have this knowledge. 
So we're, she might be tuning into something, you know, kind of stops there because she's not quite sure yet where then to go with it. And and that's that's the purpose of educating everybody, everybody, and I mean everybody <laughs> about this subject because it is just so incredibly far-reaching. I mean, we're we're talking this knowledge holds the potential not only to to change individual lives, but it really holds the potential to have a societal impact as well. Yes, it does. You've been doing a lot of education to help teachers, and that that has also kind of carried over into other areas, right, as well? Uh, I'm teaching teacher education students. So, okay. uh, yes, yeah, so I'm teaching at Pacific University. I'm teaching a course for, for education students about this subject. The reason for this is we need to get this information again out there to the masses and it needs to just be, this just needs to become one day, you know, household language. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I've been thinking back to, um, (laughs) I mean, I was never taught this and I'm, no, really, this is not taught in teacher education programs. This knowledge about uh, functional vision and how functional vision affects learning and behavior is missing from the pool of knowledge about child development and it needs to become part of it. So I'm teaching this course to undergraduate and graduate education students that they will be equipped with this knowledge going out into their field. This really needs to reach everybody. And so I wanted to, to reach all teachers, teachers who are just starting out and in their, you know, in their own programs to become teachers, but also existing teachers, teachers who are currently in the field, we need to reach them as well. And so we call this uh, an upstream downstream approach to education because it really, this really does come down to education, just educating everybody about this. So the upstream approach is to get this into the toolkits of teachers uh, coming into the field and the downstream approach is getting this into the toolkits of teachers who are already in the field. And so for that, uh, a colleague and I are writing a course, uh, a professional development course that we hope to soon <laughs> finish. And uh, pandemic derailed us a little bit, but we're back on track. Um, but we uh, we want to become make this available to really every teacher so that uh, school administrators can use this as a professional development tool for their staff. So yes, getting this knowledge into the minds and hearts of teachers everywhere is really important, but we do need to educate doctors. Yes, we need to educate pediatricians. We need to educate uh, psychologists. And again, really anybody who's in in the area of child development, child study team members, school nurses, uh, special education lawyers, far-reaching, multidisciplinary approach. And is there a new screening that we'll have available at any point in time where we're going to be able to test this in every child? So that's really a great question. And there are a couple of screening tools that do exist. 
for teachers, actually parents too, uh, really anybody to use with children that will give you an indication of the likelihood that there is a visual problem present. Now, it's not a diagnostic tool. And I want to emphasize that because only a developmental optometrist can diagnose. But screening tools are useful in finding indicators and to help us know based on the scores of the, uh, the outcomes of these screenings, what, again, the likelihood is of uh, the presence of one of these any of these visual deficits. And there are a couple of, a, a couple of these out there that are very useful. Um, again, going back to what we talked about earlier, how you know there isn't this mechanism in place. Well, now you have this tool and we know, okay, here's this child presenting with X and what well, what do we do? For all kinds of reasons, not every child is going to be able to get the help that they need mm-hmm. for these problems that are present. So uh, my, my colleague who I'm writing this course with, her name is Dr. Christy Rennick, and she is a developmental optometrist. She's, she teaches at the Western University College of Optometry out in California. She wrote a book called Eyes on Track, a manual to improve vision processing. And this book, I use her book in, in the course that I, that I teach. Um, and this book was designed to meet that need um, in a very user-friendly kind of way. So the book includes a screening mechanism in it, but based on the results, you're able to also address whatever deficits are picked up through this screening tool. Again, this is not a diagnostic tool, um, but you would again come away with a score that would indicate any potential problems that may exist. Now, if the child had a score that might be more worrisome in terms of they need more than what this particular model that she created could address, that child could be recommended for an evaluation with a developmental optometrist. However, there are lots of kids who are just walking around needing some, some shoring up or some tweaking, or even kids who need more help but wouldn't necessarily get it for whatever the reason. The book is chock full of exercises and activities that can be done right in a school to address the deficits that are picked up through the screening. What I think is beautiful about this, this design is um, Dr. Rebeck understands uh, <laughs> teachers are a little swamped. <laughs> right. It is just so hard to get everything done that you normally have to get done in the course of a day how could they possibly take on something else? Mm-hmm. And um, it's designed to bring in the support of parents to help with this. And it's a beautiful model. It's designed in a, in a very smart way that can be integrated and implemented in a school setting in a way that is practical mm-hmm. and doable. And so, so you, yes, this is a really new tool. Parent right. volunteers then to come in and, and do these activities right. with the children. Right. Right, and they would be able to be trained through the the book itself. I mean, there's enough. It includes everything that is needed to build this kind of model in a school, based on what she shares in her book. So um, yeah, it's a wonderful resource. So a proactive parent could also just take it and use it at home. With absolutely, their- absolutely. Okay. 
I'll link that in the in the notes then. Mm-hmm. So that people... Yeah, I will share the information with you so that you have it. Okay. Excellent. So in your book, you also talk about some other programs that are doing some good work in this area as well. Is that something that is ongoing as well? You know, it's interesting. There was a program that was developed uh, back in the early 90s by uh, a woman. Her name is Susanna Sosna Levine. And uh, her husband, Dr. Stanley Levine, was a, was a developmental optometrist, and she was a special education teacher. And she, through his work and observing what he did, understood the importance of it. And she wrote a curriculum called the Child Development Program. And this was to screen children coming into kindergarten across the board in terms of their their school readiness and sensory development and identify any areas that they were deficient in with regard to school readiness. And this curriculum, in addition to screening, also provided, uh, similar to Dr. Remick's book, all these different activities and protocols that could be used with the children to get them up to speed so that once they entered kindergarten, they were ready to go. It was a beautiful model that was implemented in New Jersey. And this district had very few kids requiring special services Mm -hmm. as a result of this very proactive approach. And it was a beautiful model. Unfortunately, it kind of petered out over the years as staff left and those who were familiar with it just, you know, it, it just wasn't perpetuated. I reached out to the school district when I learned about it. I have her curriculum. Mm-hmm. And I said, are you aware that, that this was being implemented in your district? And, and they, they weren't. Nobody there knew about it. There was just, unfortunately, this whole, you know, this, this, gap between this generation of of practitioners and and the new group that had come in. And unfortunately, the program was lost because of that. So we have the tools to do this. We just have to do it. (laughs) And I feel like, you know, I talked to them about it and shared with them who I, you know, what I do and what the work I'm doing. I had the curriculum and I would be happy to meet with them. And there was no interest, unfortunately. This didn't go anywhere. So yes, you you lose other models. There's a model up in Framingham, Massachusetts, where a school nurse very proactively said, you know, these kids need glasses and they're not getting them again for so many reasons. And, you know, they pulled their resources together and they uh, began a a community, a a, a clinic in their school district. Mm -hmm. And... So it wasn't just, it went way beyond that snow and chart. <laughs> and these kids who, you know, were identified with, with these, uh, these visual dysfunctions and then were uh, given glasses and they had follow-up and it's, um, you know, a wonderful, a wonderful model. Um, there are working models out there that are meeting this need, but it's hit or miss. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, again, it kind of comes down to luck for the kids who are in a place where this is happening. And so, you know, we have the answers. We have this figured out. It's just a matter of making it universal. 
-hmm. because the tools are there, the know-how is there, the research is there. Um, you know, we have so many kids falling through the cracks because we don't, again, have a systemic mechanism in place to address this. Right. So a really jarring statistic that illustrates this point is that 75% of juvenile delinquents have a vision-related learning problem. Mm -hmm. And we know this because we have de decades of research on this. And, you know, we can think very clearly here about what happens to a child when they are struggling in school and everything is hard and they're not succeeding. And if they're lucky, they have teachers and parents and coaches and child study team members and people watching out for them, trying to help them get them the help they need. And in some cases, it's enough. But in cases where you have a child struggling with a visual deficit that has gone undiagnosed or misdiagnosed for want of this knowledge and nothing that you're doing to help this child is working because it's a vision problem and we're not addressing the vision problem, mm -hmm. what happens? The child starts to develop a negative self-image and low self-esteem and they don't think they're smart and they give up on themselves. And very often they wind up going down the wrong path mm -hmm. and making poor choices and winding up in the JD system. Right. So, yeah. So again, we, we know how to fix this too. We have, <laughs> we have, we have the model already developed by the, the researchers who figured this out, you know, more than 40 years ago. We just have to implement it and get the support for that. This is why it, it really is going to take a communal effort to address this problem. It's going to take teachers and parents and pediatricians and child study team members, school nurses, mm -hmm. policymakers, lawyers, everybody to work in an interdisciplinary fashion to address this and to remedy this and it's doable it yeah. is doable well and we've focused a lot on children but children become adults with vision problems and i, I don't want to leave out the fact that adults can also uh, do those same remediations you know I, i'm a good example of that and so um my message is always that it's never too late to do something about it and if if our juvenile delinquents then are, are in our prison systems, then we can address it there also and yes. do make some changes in how those people are treated and the opportunities that they have to improve their, their actual vision. Exactly. And right. Kids with vision problems grow up to be adults with vision problems. I'm talking about kids who have vision problems that are never recognized. Mm -hmm. and they go untreated, grow up to be adults struggling with this. This is reflected in the fact that this is roughly the same percentage we see in prisoners. 75% of these problems are, are present in prisoners. 66% right. of, of illiterate adults, right? So this is reflected in the literacy problems that are compromising our, 
our workforce. Billions of dollars are spent on shoring up basic skills in adults who enter the workforce with these deficiencies who never knew that they had them and that they could have been treated right. if we knew about these when they were children. And that's so avoidable, again. Mm-hmm. Um, if we do the math, we could think we could recognize here that treating hidden vision disorders in children will save schools tens of thousands of dollars. If you think that one in four children, if you think about how one in four children are affected by a vision problem, and many of these children are going to wind up in special education programs. And in some cases, these children are transported out of district to special schools, costing the district even more mm-hmm. for transportation. And in other cases, you know, kids will drop out of school because they're failing and, and nothing that anybody has tried to do has helped them because the root cause of their struggle was missed, mm-hmm. right? This is going to cost society on many different levels. Yeah. So you're right. This conversation has to be part of the criminal justice system reform mm-hmm. conversation. Because uh, and I'll share with you that Dr. Remick many years ago in California um, piloted a program with another developmental optometrist, Dr. Stan Casino, where they went into prisons and they worked with juvenile delinquents and they uh, identified you know, the kids who had these problems. They did vision therapy with the kids and they reduced the recidivism rate from 45% to 16%. That's so, and they're... It is incredible. And there are all kinds of other studies about this. So, yes, we can reduce the crime rate mm-hmm. by addressing these problems in children very early on so that we catch them if they are present and remediate them so that that child has every chance to succeed. Yeah. Yeah, that's so, so incredibly important. We're coming up on an hour of uh, conversation today, and I feel like we could talk about it for hours and hours, and I would love to delve into what your ideas are in your other book, if we could do that sometime. Is that something that... Oh, I would love to. Yeah. (laughs) Again, I could could talk about this all day. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, You know, the more I learned... As I researched this, the more passionate I grew about this subject and the more motivated I became to help educate everybody about this. If I could just share one really important thought as we're wrapping up here, I think it would be a good thought to end on. Yeah. I, w- I want to mention, you know, go back, going back to the Snellen chart, right, that was developed to measure how well soldiers could hit a target. At the present time, Visual skills are not routinely and comprehensively examined in children to determine school readiness and to identify a deficit if one is present right. and, and potentially interfering with a child's capacity for learning. So these skills that we've been talking about are not evaluated in the division screening mm-hmm. that utilizes the Snellen chart. And we need to update this method. But before we can do that, we need to become vision literate as a society and understand what vision really is and how it affects learning capability and behavior and school success 
and ultimately the very fabric of society. So we need a broad cultural understanding of the role that vision plays and a mindset to support its care and a commitment to creating a universal method for examining children's vision that would ensure that every child receives the correct diagnosis. And so a comprehensive vision exam, just to quickly explain it, is less common than a vision screening and it greatly differs from a vision screening in that it encompasses an in-depth evaluation of all of these visual skills that are so necessary for school readiness and success. And having the means in place so every child can receive this type of examination prior to entering school and then yearly would be nothing short of a game changer. Mm -hmm. So we need this paradigm shift to make this happen. And it's going to take all of us, as I, as I mentioned before. Um, and I'll just, I'll, I just want to mention one, one other thing. I, I want to mention the common core here. Sure. Because I want to illustrate how this relates to this subject with, with a rather quick, jarring fact to leave you with. Mm -hmm. And that is that children are not biologically ready to read before the age of seven. Yeah. Yet the Common Core requires children to learn to read in kindergarten. Now, why are children not ready to read before the age of seven, biologically speaking? Because the sustained close-up focusability of the eye muscles necessary for reading are underdeveloped prior to this age. And this is normal. This is part of our inborn developmental blueprint. Right. So this begs a big question that needs big attention. How can we design our educational system to support children's development rather than induce harm to their senses, specifically their visual sense, which is our dominant sense? Yes. The answers are there. Mm -hmm. All we need to do is open our eyes to this and act. I agree. Yeah. And that is why we're putting this out there. Right? <laughs> so that we can bring a greater attention to these issues. And I thank you so much for sharing all of that with us today. It's oh, it was my pleasure, Denise. Yeah, it has been wonderful to talk with you. And thank you so much for inviting me on. Again, I really appreciate the opportunity to share this knowledge and look forward to future dialogues and continue to do the amazing work that you're doing. Okay, yeah, definitely. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Healing Our Sight. If you liked this episode, please subscribe, add a review, and share it on your favorite social media. You can also ask questions or suggest a guest by visiting my Facebook page, Healing Our Site, and more information is found on my website, HealingMySite.com. Thanks again for listening. Mm -hmm.